Thank you for having me back again. <laughs> I haven't been cast away yet, which is good. But no, we come to uh, having started our Genesis series and seen some beautiful things in the first two chapters. We come to this chapter uh, called The Fall, often by lots of us and most people, really. Uh, there's lots in this, and there is, I'm not going to be able to cover it all, but we will be looking at the core of it together. Uh, so... Let me pray as we begin. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that you speak to us. Help us by your spirit tonight uh, to hear and understand what you have to say to us. Amen. So where have we been in the first two chapters? Uh, We saw that creation was very good. God had filled the garden and placed man in the garden uh, to fill and subdue it. The man was to lead, to work and watch over the garden. The woman was the man's perfect helper and complement for this task and this responsibility. Together they were given a task. Together the Lord gave them, though, one command. Do not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. The tree was placed in the garden by God so that man would exercise their position under the authority of God and his word. Here with the tree in the garden, they could practice their obedience to God's word and their position under God. They were to obey the good command to not eat from this tree. Man is special, created in the image of God, but we are not God. The Garden of Eden was paradise. There the man and woman dwelt with God. They spoke with God. They walked with God. Their relationship to each other was one of love and care and perfect harmony. They were partners in their task. And creation, it posed no threat. It was no harm to them. It was in fact a source of joy and a source of provision. All the travelling we could do in the world now even here in Australia, from Jarvis Bay to the Daintree Rainforest, from, from the Mount Kosciuszko to Ningaloo Reef, way over in the west. Or even if we crossed the seas and left our country and went to Europe or Asia, and all the beauty of the world that we could see would pale in comparison to the Garden of Eden. God saw all that he, all that he had made, and it was very good. And so we come to our chapter this morning. Three scenes I'm going to draw out from this chapter. One, the fall. Two, the excuses. And three, the consequences. One, the fall. Two, the excuses. And three, the consequences. This is such an important passage. One of the guys in my gospel team this week, even though we were looking at Genesis 2, couldn't help but comment on Genesis 3 saying that when he first read this chapter, it just made sense of his experience of the world. And that's pretty well what I want us to understand tonight, want us to see this tonight, is that this passage just makes sense of our world. The world promotes and pushes for progress. And even though we live in a a time when the world is mostly at peace and is relatively prosperous, there are still times in everyone's life when we come face to face with the brokenness of this world. What we work for disappears out of our hands. Our relationships don't satisfy. 
Life feels unfulfilled. People let us down. And as we face these times, I'm not sure if you've experienced this, but people try to comfort you with well-meaning lines like, it is what it is, or that's life. Move on. It will all turn out for the better, or make the most of what you've got now. Make the most of life now. But this passage today shows us that creation is not the way God made it to be. The pain, the brokenness, the frustration of this life is not normal. It is broken and it sits under the judgment of God, which stems all the way back to this event. So scene one in the fall, the fall, verses one to seven, let's have a look. These verses tell us about what sin is. Sin is disobeying God's good command. Sin is disobeying God's good command. And here is the original sin that has affected us all. So much of what happens in this scene, I see in myself and in our world as I look out. I wonder if you you will see the same. In verse 1, we are introduced to the serpent. He is the most cunning of the wild animals and he is not where he's meant to be. You don't keep a lion in the backyard. From other parts of scripture, we understand that the serpent here is Satan. But he doesn't look like the cartoon picture of Satan, does he? No, he doesn't have a pitchfork and he's not all red. No, he's shown up in the everydayness and the ordinariness of a creature. He is difficult to see. And while the serpent, as cunning as he is, he casts a line out. And we should be suspicious. The line he casts out, it's seemingly innocent, but it's full of deception, it's full of cunning. And the woman, she nibbles at first, but then she bites. The serpent gets the woman to question the very words of God in verses 1 and 4. Did God really say, don't eat from the tree? No, you won't die. In fact, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. He's a jealous God. He wants to keep you down. His command, it's not for your good. It's not for your good. Trust me. Well, the woman, she responds to the serpent, but she misrepresents God's word in her response. She forgets about the freedom to eat from any of the multitude of the trees. God gave her to eat from. She adds to the law, don't even touch it. God never said that. And she minimizes the certainty of the penalty of death that God has warned her of. She misrepresents and questions questions God's word. In this whole chapter, the serpent is given three verses. And from here, the serpent drops out of the story at the end of verse 5. He doesn't speak again. But instead the author zooms in on Eve, on the woman, and we get this insight into the thought process of the woman. She puts herself in the place of God as she looks and deems the fruit to be good, just as God did each day of creation. He saw what he had made and it was good. And then the fall, sin, this event, happens so fast at the end of verse 6. She sees the fruit is good, so she takes it and she eats, 
gives to her husband and he eats too. Done. The fall has happened. The sin is in. The sin has happened. The woman is deceived. But in her own deliberations, she decides on her own merit to eat, to sin. However, the man who should be leading and stepping in, who is right by her side, well, instead, he doesn't obey God. He obeys and listens to the voice of his wife. He needs no persuasion, does he? He asks no questions. He just takes the fruit from her and eats. And he sins too. And their eyes are opened. They've put themselves in the place of God. They've decided to listen to their own voices and not obey God's command. The original sin. So damaging and so immediate are the effects of sin that their relationship with each other is immediately affected. Did you see? They, without even having been accused by God or by anyone, they see their nakedness and are ashamed. They cover up with leaves and hide in the bushes from God. Surely this is a sign of their guilt. Surely they know what they've done without even having been accused. The first sin, the fall. Do we not see ourselves in this event? Because we do the same. We think and do many things as we sin, but primarily we disobey God's good command. As we sin, we find ourselves maybe twisting the word of God we, might, we may ignore it or suppress it, put it out of our mind so I can just go into this sin without having thought of anything. We minimize the consequences of sin. It's just going to harm me. We minimize how it will affect us and our relationships with each other and with God. And as we are tempted to hide and not turn to Him in repentance and faith, we see the effects too. It's a simple lesson really here. Do not sin. Don't sin like Adam and Eve did. It goes without saying. But do not be deceived. It is sneaky. Also, do not ignorantly just walk into sin. You can't hold, you can't hold on to fire without being burned. Rather, listen to God, know his commands and obey him. Scene one, the fall. Sin that has affected the whole world as we know it. This is not the way God made it to be. And so here comes the excuses. Scene two, verses eight to 13, very briefly. It would be comical how they point away from themselves. We would laugh if it weren't for the event that this story tells. It would be comical because it is exactly what we expect today. We see it all the time in ourselves and in others. The man and the woman, they blame God. The man blames the woman. The woman blames the snake. They blame their circumstances just as our world does, just as we do. It wasn't my fault. I was just following the leader. You put me in this position. It's never, their, it's never your fault. It's never our fault. My brother's go-to excuse growing up was a magpie flew in the window and did it. But we, never found, we never found that magpie. <laughs> But doesn't it stand out though when someone does make ex- doesn't make excuses and says sorry? It's an easy way for us to stand out as different to this world. 
at work when you make a mistake or when you lose your temper with your children unfairly or when you are cruel with your words to a friend instead of blaming others or the circumstances that you found yourself in why not say sorry admit you're wrong and ask for forgiveness seen to the excuses but it doesn't really help them as we come to see scene three the consequences verses 14 to 24 in this next scene adam and eve they have to face the consequences of their sin as they face the judgment of god creation is placed under the judgment of god and so are they so much of what we call normal today is part of the judgment of god it should not we, and it should be leading us to lament and mourn, but also to repent and turn back to God. For everything is not the way God made it to be. The toil and the frustration of work, the difficulty we have in providing food, the difficulty between man and nature, the fraught nature of relationships between men and women are all because of this. But above all, we see that man is alienated from his all-caring creator. And so the Lord God judges the, judges the man and the woman, but first he turns to the serpent. The serpent, having lifted his head above his station as a creature, who puts himself above uh, God's word and above man and woman, well, God humbles him forever, curses him that the snake may eat dust all its days. But also there's a hint there in verse 15. The snake, the serpent is destined to be defeated by a man, the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ. In these verses there's a glimmer of grace and hope. The single seed, the seed of the woman will strike the serpent's head and he will strike your heel. Now, theologians, they like to call this the proto-euangelion. It's a fancy word. They like those kinds of things. But they like their big words. What they could have simply said is the first gospel, the first glimpse of the gospel, a glimmer of grace amongst a dark and painful passage. It's wonderful that in this, what is a glimmer in Genesis 3, we have now seen in all the shining glory of it in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew 4, the Lord Jesus is tempted face to face by Satan. In the wilderness he goes, and just as Satan did with the woman, he twists and misuses God's word. And where the woman and Adam failed, well, Jesus held to God's word and used God's word rightly. He did not cave to temptations. He did not fail. He did not disobey. But doing what we could not, he was fully obedient to the Lord God so that we may be credited his righteousness and his obedience may be put upon us at the cross. Where we failed, he succeeded. Isn't it wonderful that three chapters into the Bible we have this first glimpse of the gospel? And so in the middle of the consequences of sin, there is this hint of Satan's defeat and man's victory in Jesus Christ. God's grace is here. 
But let's keep going. Let's look at what God says to the man and the woman. Now, as I wrote this part of the sermon, I hesitated as I came to it. Because the consequences here, they are just really painful. We've all experienced them in many different ways. And so as I came to write this bit, I became really aware of what I was saying and how I was saying it. But my aim here is to be sensitive to the the pain and the realities of this broken world. But I also don't want to water it down. We need to capture, I want to capture appropriately the difficulty of life because of sin and its consequences. Because things are not the way God made them to be. And we see that here. Bear in mind as well that this is a description of the consequences of sin. It's a description of the fallen and broken world that sits under the judgment of God. For God is just and he cannot ignore sin. Let me say that again, what I just said in a different way. Let me clarify. The consequences of sin here are not what we should be aiming for. They are not an excuse to be used, but they are something that we lament and mourn. What we fight against, they are what we fight against as Christians as we try and move towards godliness. But it is also what drives us back to Christ as we experience this broken world. He knows what it is like to live and suffer in this world. So these consequences are not what we aim for. They are not prescriptive. Let's look at the consequences though now to the man and the woman. Their roles are affected. Remember they had a task in Genesis 1 and 2. Together they were to fill and subdue the earth. He was to lead, she was to follow. They, were e- they are equal but different. But now that relationship and that task is going to be difficult. For the woman, the role of helper and complement to Adam is now going to be one of tension and a battle. Regarding children, from conception to birth, there will be pain and there will be anguish. Regarding her place in the order of creation, she will seek to lead and rule over men or man, and man will rule over her over her, not in love and kindness, but harshly and brutally. I think we see the reality of this today. As groups advocate to push men to the side and are blamed for the problem and men are blamed for the problems of the world, and women are held up as the heroes. But we also see the flip side of that as men in positions of power abuse their power. They squash women under their thumb. Neither is right. Neither is the way this relationship was made to be. The author, though, he gives more time now as he turns to Adam. Or the Lord God does, sorry. And yet again, the Lord God makes it clear why he is being judged. Surely we know why he's being judged. We've just read it. We've just heard it. He knows what he's done wrong. But in verse 17, the Lord God makes it clear again for us. Because you listened to your wife's voice and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it, the ground is cursed. The issue was not that he listens to his wife. But it's that he obeys his wife's voice and not God's. 
his wife is directly going against God's command. And he obeys his wife and not God. The problem is not that he listens to his wife. It's that he disobeys God's good command. For this though, his role as worker and provider is frustrated. The ground is cursed because of you. Creation becomes an enemy of man. What was once joyful and, prov- and a provision, he will now eat bread by the sweat of his brow until he dies. I think the bread here stands as a contrast to fruit, to eating fruit. Now, I love bread. But through lockdowns, I learned how hard it was to make bread. It takes a lot of effort. It requires mixing and waiting and then kneading it and waiting for it to rise. And then you have to knead it again and wait for it to rise. And then you finally get to the point where you get to throw it in the oven for ages. And then just when you think you can eat it, you take it out of the oven and the book says, leave it for a few hours until it cools down. I didn't even have to harvest the flour or mill it. It takes forever to make bread and it's hard work. It is so much easier to eat fruit. Pluck it from the tree and there you go. But now for the man, there will be thorns and thistles to contend with too. And the penalty of death that God told them would certainly happen, well, it doesn't happen immediately, but it does come as it has done for all men, all people ever since, except for one who defeated death. But the final consequence comes as they are driven out of the garden. In verse 22 on. They are cut off from God. They are cut off from the tree of life. The paradise of the garden of Eden is no more, and life outside is one of pain and trouble. Their relationship with each other and with the ground is difficult. What was once to love and to cherish becomes to desire and to dominate. What was once headship and helping becomes rebellion and ruling. And this will continue until they die. We see this still today in our world. The world is not the way it was made to be. But more significantly, we are cut off from God with no way back to his presence, unable to come before him as sinners. There is no one righteous. I've only just realized that as I spoke about Isaiah 6, he understood this, unable to come into the presence of God. We are enemies of God. By nature, we are objects of wrath. Our relationship with God, though, it is not the way God made it to be. So where do we go from here? Life is not the way it was made to be. Don't be numb to that. Don't just accept it. See it and feel it. You don't need to bury it down with all your strength. You don't need to ignore it. It really is painful. And it is appropriate to lament and mourn the pain of this broken world. The psalmist does it all the time. But in God's patience, he is giving people time to turn to him in repentance and faith. So turn to him if you have not and continue to do so as you see, if you have. Continue to do it as you see the consequences of sin in this fallen world. Do not hide in the trees, but lament and repent. 
But as I said before, where we fail and disobey God and succumb to temptation, Jesus has succeeded. He faced the devil head on in his temptations and was obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so as we get to the end of Genesis 3, we are meant to ask, how will this relationship with God be restored? How will we get back to the garden? And the Bible has a lot to say about it. There are so many places we could go. But for us now in Christ, we look back and we look forward. We look back and we see that only by his obedience to the death on the cross and by his blood are we made and declared righteous. Are we able to come into God's presence? For just as sin entered the world at the fall and so condemnation and death spread to all men, how much more has the free gift of life in Jesus Christ overflowed to the many? Where there was condemnation in Adam, there is now justification and life in Jesus. Where sin multiplied, grace multiplied all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Only in coming to the Lord Jesus is there a way back to God. And in that, we can truly rejoice in all circumstances of life, just as Paul did, even in the face of a creation that is not the way it was made to be. So we look back, but we also look forward. We look forward to the new heavens and the new earth, where the broken creation and the painful relationships with each other and our alienation from God will be made new. Let me read from Revelation 21, as Josh read for us at the beginning of the service. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his people and be their God, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. This is what we look forward to in Jesus. Things are not the way God made them to be. But Jesus has ensured that they, the things will be made new and restored. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We lament the pain and the brokenness of this world that comes face to face with each of us. But we long for that new heaven and that new earth and the glorious reality that will be as we come to Jesus and see him face to face. I pray in your son's name. Amen.